Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. It's a pleasure to preach to you these three chapters. Isaiah 60, 61, and 62, because they go together and they have one common theme, and that is the glory that the Jewish church of the Old Testament would receive when the Messiah arrived to it. And then that Messiah died for it and for the people of God scattered abroad. And then that Messiah ascended up into heaven and sent his spirit down into that church and had chosen 12 apostles and sent those apostles out with mighty signs and wonders to turn the world upside down. And we thank the Lord for that. And it is my desire that when we're studying Isaiah, that we're not studying Romans. And it's my desire when we're studying Isaiah that we're not studying Ephesians. Those places help us understand what's taking place and the time frame for it. But when we're studying Isaiah, we want to see what these words actually mean in their context. And in their context, it was for the Jewish church. It's not the Gentile church here. It's the Jewish church. And so it's important to me for you to have the two perspectives and to set one aside. I ordinarily don't set the New Testament aside very often, and I'm not really setting it aside at all. I'm just asking you, if you want to learn Isaiah, you'll forget the New Testament for the moment to look at these words as they're intended for the Jewish church of the Old Testament. Isaiah 62 only has 12 verses, and so because of that, I want to go back and review Isaiah 60 and 61 just a little bit with you before we get to 62. Now let's look at the first three verses of Isaiah 60 again. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. All these second person pronouns, thee and thy, in this chapter tell us that the key issue here is the glory of the Jewish church. The key issue is not the glory of Christ, though it is definitely here, because that's what rose upon the Jewish church, but it's that the Gentiles would come to the Jewish church. They would be converted to them. They would milk the Gentiles. The Gentiles would bring their riches to the Jewish church. And I want you to see that. Now, these and thee and thee and thee, over and over again in Isaiah 60, do you know how many there are? 51. 51. 51 statements about the Gentiles coming to the Jewish church, to thee. As you can see, arise, shine, for thy light is come. The light was bursting upon this dark, obscure, captive little nation and little church of the Jewish nation called Israel. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And I made this point last Sunday. I know that. I'm repeating it. Because I want you to understand, these three chapters go together, and chapter 62 that we're going to look at today closes off this little lesson and this theme. When we look at verse 5, Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. Gentiles would be converted to a Jewish church, and it's churches. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. It just states it over and over. And I want you to love Isaiah 60 through 62 for the reason God gave it. And that's the glory of that Old Testament church. The Gentiles would be converted to the Jewish church. Look at verse 8. I loved verse 8. I still love it. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? It's like a flock of birds coming to the Jewish church, and it's you and me. It's Gentiles. It's Gentiles of the first century, and it's Gentiles of the 21st century. Don't let me get off on homing pigeons right now, but if you knew a little bit about homing pigeons, 
and the instinctive nature of doves going to their window, you would understand that the Gentiles would have in their natures an absolute obsession to hear the gospel from Jewish lips. We go to verse 11. Therefore thy gates shall be opened continually. That is the gates of the Jewish church, the doors, its ministries. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. So there's always going to be an open door to the truth of the gospel into the Jewish church, and the Gentiles would flock there and press in to the kingdom. We can look at verse 15. Verse 15, Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, and that was the reputation of the Jewish church, I mean, it was captive in Babylon for 70 years. And when they came back, they were so obscure. The temple was so small and pitiful looking. And the Greeks took advantage of them. Then the Romans took advantage of them. They had to submit to an Edomite that was the king of the Jews, Herod the Great. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, everybody avoided Jerusalem. It was a pile of rubble. I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations." And that is truly fulfilled in the New Testament church, the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all, Galatians chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 13. We can look at verse 17 and look at the upgrade. For brass, I will bring gold. This is God upgrading the church from the Old Testament to the New Testament. For brass, I will bring gold, and for iron, I will bring silver, and for wood, brass, and for stones, iron. I will also make thy officers peace and thine exactors righteousness. What an upgrade. You know, it doesn't mention gold and silver being replaced with anything because that is taught elsewhere, and that would be introducing a concept difficult for this audience to understand, and that was the blood of Christ and Jesus' death on the cross. I mentioned this to you last Lord's Day. Haggai chapter 2 tells us that Haggai told Zerubbabel, don't you be discouraged by this little temple that you're rebuilding because the desire of all nations will visit this temple and the glory of this second temple will be greater than Solomon's temple. I already own all the gold and silver, so it's not mentioned. I already own all the gold and silver and I'm going to send my son. And for as much as we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh, it's one, what an upgrade. Look at 22, an upgrade in size. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. God was going to explode the church. Remember those words from other sermons in the 50s of Isaiah? where there would be so many children that the children would have to ask for more property because there wasn't enough property. They were going to have to expand the tent, have stronger cords, more material. Do you remember? You're supposed to remember these things because there was going to be an explosion in the size of the church of God, and there was. Then we come to chapter 61, and the first three verses Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and said that they were fulfilled with him being there and reading those verses. So we know it's New Testament era. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and him being sent by God. We look at verse 4. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And so there's a sense, and this is true of many verses in Isaiah, there's a sense in which it was fulfilled by Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the others that built up the waste places of the literal city of Jerusalem. However, if we want to be wise and understand the spiritual religion of the Bible, we will remember that in Acts chapter 15, James under the influence of the Holy Spirit, said that Gentiles being converted were building up the tabernacle of David that was in waste condition. 400 years after Zerubbabel. And so we let the New Testament guide us and help us where we need it to understand a verse like this. This was fulfilled by Peter going to the household of Cornelius and baptizing it later that day and then Paul and Barnabas converting many Gentiles. We look at verses 5 and 6. 
Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and you'll be boasting in their glory coming over to you. The difference. The Jews had been the servants. The Jews had been the servants. But now there's going to be a total transition. The Gentiles were going to be the Jews' servants. The strangers in verse 5, strangers are going to stand and feed your flocks. And the Gentiles would be servants of the Jews, and they would highly regard the Jews and call them priests with a capital P and call them ministers with a capital M because those Gentiles that converted wanted to hear preaching by a Jew. They didn't want to hear preaching by some Gentile. What would he know about the truth? The Jews were the church of God. Jesus was a Jew and a minister of the circumcision. I want you to appreciate these chapters. They're phenomenal. I can't tell you all the stories about the Apostle Paul, but the Gentiles loved Paul. The whole church and the elders of the church went out there to the seaside when Paul was going to leave Ephesus for the last time. They left Ephesus quite a distance and wept with him and hugged him because they weren't going to see him again. He was a Jew. They were Gentiles. When he hit Italy, the Gentiles came down to the three taverns in Appy Forum because they loved Paul, because he was a priest with a capital P, and he was a minister with an M, and he was an apostle with a capital A. They just didn't know that word yet in the Old Testament, but they were going to get it in the New Testament. And we look at verse 7. For your shame ye shall have double. This is God doubling things up over the bad things he had to do to the Old Testament church because of their sins. He would more than make up for it by doubling everything in the New Testament. And remember, there was a wonderful transition there in the person, wasn't there? From the second to the third. For your shame ye shall have double, that second person, and for confusion they, that third person, shall rejoice in their portion, and the portion of the Jews in the New Testament were blessed greatly. We can go to verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Our young brother mentioned this as he was explaining to us Psalm 122. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me. He has adorned me, and that is the Jewish church, like a bride and a bridegroom adorn themselves with ornaments, to be as attractive and beautiful as possible on their great day in the sun, in their, at, their, at a wedding. And the Lord has done that to the church by beautifying it, and he has beautified it with righteousness and salvation and praise. So that the church is known in the world, and the Gentiles loved it for the sake of the righteousness it preached, and the salvation it preached, and the praise that resulted. That's what our church, we want our church to be exactly like this prophecy of the New Testament church, where the emphasis is on righteousness being preached and righteous character and righteousness by the vital work of the Holy Ghost and by salvation in all of its phases and by the praise that we offer God. So that brings us to Isaiah 62. These three chapters do go together. 63 is going to be different and 59 was different. This is one theme here that we've had. It's a key to understand these three chapters are exalting the Jewish church for great spiritual blessings. They got it all. To which church was the Holy Spirit poured out? A Gentile church? Antioch? Ephesus? Corinth? No. Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Was Pentecost a Gentile feast or was it a Jewish feast? On and on we could go. The apostles, were they Gentiles or were they Jews? You say, but Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, he was, but he was a Jew. And he was a Jew and he was a capital M and a capital P, minister and priest to the Gentiles. What a blessing. So that when you read these chapters, arise, shine. God is speaking to an obscure church sitting in the dust discouraged after being deserted by their God. They had been called forsaken and desolate. They're about to be called something different, Hephzibah and Beulah, but that's in chapter 62. They were desolate. 
And they were supposed to arise and get excited about the, what God was going to pour out upon them. And that is how to understand these three chapters. These are not Gentiles speaking, though we t- took the idea, used Ephesians 5.14 last Sunday to say, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. Because we have our own obligation to be excited and enthusiastic, joyful and full of praise about the things God has done for us. I hope that I've made my point. If you want to know what Isaiah 60, 61, and 62 are about, and in order to get into the words, the 51 these and thys of chapter 60, you've got to recognize that it's blessings on the Jewish church. And it was a blessing for us to come crawling to them, flying to them, lining up before them that they were going to have to open gates and doors to us. They were going to have to preach to us because we ignorant Gentiles didn't know anything at all until God saved us and then he sent Jewish preachers to us. And he sent Jewish churches to show us how a church should function. We still look to Acts chapter 2 as the example of a perfect church because under the influence of the Spirit, we have more details there about that church than any other. The kingdom of God started by John exploded at Pentecost as the Jewish church greatly multiplied. From Jerusalem, the Jews took the gospel to the world and the Gentile elect loved it and the Jews that brought it. We have preached against Jewish fables so hard in the past, I fear that sometimes we can't appreciate chapters like this in the Bible, but we want to appreciate both. And I hope that you understand without them, we're not perfect. And without us, they are not perfect, as the last two verses of Hebrews 11 told us just a few minutes ago. Nothing else in the way of introduction. Let's get into this 62nd chapter of Isaiah. We've got 12 verses, and we will cover them, the Lord willing, in a good time. Verse 1, the Jewish, churches, the Jewish church declares through Isaiah, its intercessor, its great desire for these blessings to actually happen. Verse 1, for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. With all the background I've given you, I would hope that you could jump up in this pulpit right now and tell us what that verse is talking about to some measure. The promised light and glory of the Jewish church, I'm going to pray that God will actually do it. I'm not going to let him rest. I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to hold my peace. I'm going to pray without ceasing that God will actually do these great things. For Zion's sake, not for God's sake, not for Christ's sake, please, you know I would never exalt a church over the Son of God or His Father, but to understand this passage. For Zion's sake, the promised blessings upon the church, I'm going to pray for them, and I'm not going to stop praying for them. And so Isaiah takes the role of an intercessor. When a minister has hope of deliverance, he should persevere in prayer. That God will do what God has said he's going to do. And I'm going to get to it in just a second. That is not a lack of faith. That is an evidence of faith. To pray for something that has been promised and to ask God to do what he has said he'll do. He wants us to see that we're embracing the promise and we're trusting him for it and we're not looking to bring it about any other way like going into Hagar and crawling under the sheets with her. You see, that wasn't trusting the Lord. He should have just called upon the Lord to fulfill his word with Sarah and crawled under the sheets with Sarah, and I hope everybody can handle that. That's why I don't give illustrations. I was deprived of an aptitude for them. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, Isaiah says, as the intercessor of the nation, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Now we've already seen that light. That light is going to shine to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to flock to the church. This is the New Testament era transition 
of the Old Testament Jewish church to the New Testament Jewish church and then the Gentiles coming into it. And Isaiah is not going to quit praying for it. And it's a wonderful illustration of how we ought to live being pastors and people of prayer. I will not rest. I will not hold my peace. I will not stop talking. The New Testament short version is pray without ceasing. Now, if you look down to verses 6 and 7, it's going to be repeated to us so that we can understand these words even a little bit better. Verse 6, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem. These are God-called ministers. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. When did Jerusalem become a praise in the earth? Not with Zerubbabel, but with Christ. With Christ it became a praise in the earth. Let me, let me show you a little play on words. Pastor, do you really believe every word of God of the King James Bible? I actually do. Amen. I actually do. Look at verse 1. For Zion's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. I want you to notice the word rest. I will not rest. Isaiah wasn't going to rest. He wasn't going to take time off or go on vacation from prayer. I'm not going to rest. But look at verse 7. And give him no rest. Who's that? It's God. Is that neat? You say, how do they, how do, they do that from Hebrew to English? I don't care how they do it. I just know they did it. And I love little things like that. When you are praying without resting, God doesn't get any rest. When God doesn't get any rest, he is going to answer your prayer request. In Luke chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 18, we have two stories told about the unjust judge and the widow who needed to be avenged of her adversaries. Remember? And she kept left leaving phone messages day after day, every morning. When that judge came into work and he hit the answering machine, there was that widow asking for him. And the Lord said, that is how you should pray. Drive him crazy. Give him no rest. That is the word of God. I, I do not speak irreverently. I'm speaking reverently about prayer that we should be aggressive in it. And then verse then Luke 18, I may have had just reversed these in my mind, but in Luke, the other passage is Luke 18, verses uh, 1 through 8. It's uh, the friend who's in bed with his children, and his neighbor needs some food, and it says, because he's his friend, it's not good enough to get him out of bed. Just because God is there and he's our Father in heaven isn't good, isn't good enough to get him to answer. You've got to pound on the door you got to pound on the door until finally he gets up because you're going to drive him crazy. And so when a, when a person prays, listen, you too can pray and not rest in some matter for your lives, and your sister can do it as well. And give God no rest. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to share that with you from verse 1, that there's a little play on the word rest. And the point is, they were praying for Messiah to come and his kingdom and the righteousness and salvation that was going to come with the Lord Jesus Christ and that church was going to explode and all the world would know about it and the Gentiles would flock to it. All the things that we have been reading about in chapter 60 and 61. The Gentiles shall come to thy light in 60 and verse 3 and here we are in 62 and verse 1 that the prophet is praying, I can't wait for this time when Jerusalem will be exalted and the Jewish church will be exalted in the earth, spiritual Jerusalem. Because God tore earthly Jerusalem to the ground and burned it down. This is heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But I thought God had promised all these things. Why doesn't the prophet believe that God's going to do this for them? So, when you find a promise in the Bible... You just say, cool, I'm going to add that to my Bible promise book. Why don't you lay hold of that and show the Lord how important it is to you by asking him to fulfill it so that you don't try to fulfill it yourself or you just don't think it's going to happen by itself because as the man in bed with his children, 
or the judge who was supposed to take care of widows, they weren't going to do it until they were pressed to do it. And so you should press to do it. Here's my, here's my favorite Bible example of this. 2 Samuel 7 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's where David and God have a discussion about the fact that David wants to build God a temple. He, he's not content with God having a tabernacle and being worshipped in a tent. And I don't blame him, and I hope that uh, you don't blame him either. And God, David wants to build God a temple, and the Lord sends Nathan to tell David, I'm not going to let you build that temple. But where'd you get that idea? That idea is tremendous. You want to build me a house? I never mentioned a house. I'm going to build you a house. If you'll read the rest of that chapter, God gets done speaking and promising all these wonderful things he's going to do to David. And David says, um, it is not the ordinary way with men for God to speak about them like you have just spoken about me. But would you mind if I asked you to do what you just said? It, it's precious. It's precious. If you want to see a man and God close together, going back and forth, it's 2 Samuel chapter 7. I really like what you said. It's really great. It's not the ordinary way of God dealing with men. Will you please do it? You've got to read the last five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you'll see that it's very scriptural, and the man after God's own heart did it, and so Isaiah is doing it as well here. Let's go to the next lesson. Verses 2 through 5, Zion is promised many future blessings. That word Zion, there in verse 1, is another name for Jerusalem, is another name for the church. Uh, Zion was a mountain on which the fortress of Zion was built uh, when they first found it, and the Jebusites occupied it, and Joab took it and gave David the credit for it. And it's, it's a long story in the Bible. But Zion, and that word is still used in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, which I've mentioned already. We are come unto Mount Zion. But it's the spiritual Mount Zion in heaven. It's the spiritual invisible kingdom of Jesus Christ, the son of David, sitting on the throne of God's kingdom. And it, and it rules earth and heaven. And we're part of it. By being part of his church, being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen... Lesson two is in verses two through five, and there are many promised future blessings to Zion. Here we go. Two through five of Isaiah 62. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Amen and amen. Verse 2, the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. This is the spiritual religion of the New Testament that Gentiles would see. This isn't exclusively the legal righteousness of Christ obtained in the cross. It's bigger than that. It's something that you'd be able to see, something that you'd be able to hear, something that you would be able to observe. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of righteousness. It's the gospel of salvation exploding out from the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And thou shalt be called a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now, when we, when we think about this name that God is going to name the Jewish church, we can run into the New Testament and find out that at Antioch of Syria, in Acts chapter 11, the disciples were called Christians. We can look in the New Testament and see that the title for the people of God were called the children of God rather than the children of Abraham, rather than the children of Israel. They're called children of God. And we could work it a number of ways, but I, I don't go there. I don't go there. There's something neater, cleaner, and right in our context. And so I want to share this with you. If we look at verse 4, which I've already read to you, there's going to be two new names given to the Jewish church. It's going to be Hephzibah and Beulah. And we don't need a dictionary or a lexicon for the definitions because they're right there in verse 4. The Lord delighteth in thee is Hephzibah, 
and thy land shall be married, is Beulah, the bride of Christ, the delightful bride, the lovely bride, the perfect bride, compared to forsaken and desolate. If we continue in the chapter, we get down to verse 12, and we have two more names. The, this chapter ends with the words, Thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. So instead of that wife being rejected when she was young and they got back from their honeymoon and he threw her out, that's Isaiah 54. Do you remember? You're supposed to remember all this. Isaiah 54, the wife was thrown away. The husband didn't want her anymore. But then he took her back. And so she is called a sought out woman. Every woman loves to be chased. Every woman loves to be chased by a man. And here the Lord is using that kind of terminology for the Jewish church it's going to be sought out because God's coming after it. And God did come after it, and a city not forsaken. You are no longer a city or a bride forsaken. You're mine, and you're my delightful bride. You're the bride of Christ. You're my delightful wife. Back up there in verse 4. Now, I'm going to give you one more. You say, you usually don't give us options to pick from. Well, because usually there aren't any. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 33. This one, I'm going to give you another one. I'm going to give you another name for the Jewish church. I'm kind of content with Hephzibah, Beulah, sought out, a city not forsaken. That's four. I can jump to the New Testament, but I don't see any need to do so since there are names given right in context. But here's one from Jeremiah 33. Verse 15 says, In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. Who do you think that capital B branch is? To grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So if you like Jeremiah 33, 16 better than Isaiah 62, 4, I'm going to let you go your way happy, and I'm going to say go in peace. Because it's a name that fits, and I'm not going to fight you on it. The Bible doesn't clearly tell me which one he's talking about. I have four in chapter. I have Jeremiah 33, 16, and I have ones in the New Testament. And if you want to be so obscure as to run all the way to the book of Revelation and say, a new name that no man knoweth except he himself, you could go there. But really, really? Can we do better than that? We can do better than that right here in the context of this desolate, forsaken church. Because notice, in verse 4, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. And so it is a transition from former names to a new name. So let's try to keep that in mind. And that is why I go with verse 4. Hephzibah a delightful wife, a delightful bride that I sought out She's no longer forsaken. Okay. That's verse 2. These are blessings that are going to come on the Jewish church. She had been forsaken. She was desolate. The city, the temple, everything was desolate and tore to the ground. And it's going to be put back together. And he's going to love her. And he's going to embrace her. He's going to chase her down. And they're going to have many children together. You're supposed to remember Isaiah 54. They're going to have to get a bigger house because the Lord's going to bless their relationship so much. Verse 3, Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. A crown in God's hand, a diadem, a scepter, a diadem, a scepter with a diadem on the end of it, in the hand of God. The Jewish church would be ornaments that would glorify God. They were going to bring glory to God, and the whole earth, the whole earth was going to recognize that out of that Jewish church, came the true worshipers of God. We have read it over and over, and we'll see it before we get out of this chapter. The whole earth is going to know they are the redeemed people of God. They are the holy ones of God. And it's the spiritual reputation of the Jewish church and its apostles going forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing glory to God. Verse 4, we've already been over it. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. You can understand that verse so easily. 
Verse 5, for as a young man marrieth a virgin, there's a lot of passion involved when a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. The future generations of the Jewish church are going to love the Jewish church and embrace it and serve it with all their might. And they were daily in the temple, daily in the temple with one accord, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Notice, the Lord is able to take a simile and direct it toward the members of the church loving the church and direct it toward God loving the church. Because he can do anything he wants to with a simile. And if that confuse, you have no idea the pages that have been written on the confusion of verse 5 that it is teaching incest. You have no idea until you learn to trust your Bible because it says thy sons shall marry thee. That just doesn't sound right, honestly. That doesn't bother me a bit. Lord have mercy. I did not understand how they ever got in the ministry. Nor why they ever wrote a commentary. Just look at that verse 5 and understand that it's talking about passion. The passion that the church members would have for the church and the passion that God would have for the church. No problem. No problem at all. Thank you, Heavenly Father. You know, how, how excited is the Lord over his church? Can you find Zephaniah? If you can't find it, let me read it to you. Zephaniah chapter 3. And ver I'll read it to you. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. That's God's excitement toward his church. It's a wonderful verse. Zephaniah 3.17. And so now we come to verses 6 and 7 in this three-chapter section of the book of Isaiah about God's blessing on the Jewish church, and this is constant prayer for the future blessings. If verse 2 is actually going to happen, if verse 3 is truly going to happen, if verse 4, we're going to be renamed, if verse 5 accurately describes the love that we're going to have for the Jewish church and God's love for it, then let's pray for it. Verse 1 isn't enough prayer. Verses 6 and 7 are additional prayer. And so the assignment is made to the preachers to make sure they pray. Verse 6, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem. Those are preachers. We've already been over this. If you've remembered the things that we've covered, some watchmen don't bark. They're dogs that don't bark. They're worthless. A watchman warns of danger. I have set watchmen over thy wall, upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Brethren, before I even try to comment even briefly on this, let's pray for our church. Let's make our church. Let's ask God to make our church a beacon of light and a beacon of hope in the whole earth as far as he'll take our influence. The Bible tells me about the Thessalonian church that everywhere Paul went, they already knew about the conversion of the Thessalonians, that the word of the Lord had sounded out from the Thessalonian church, and they did not have to say anything about the conversion of those people because they already knew about it. Let's let our church be that way. We need God's spirit with us and blessing us to do so. So let's pray for it. The exhortation here is give God no rest in verse 7 until God establish and until God makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So with those blessings and those promises of verses 2 through 5, the response of Isaiah and the response of God is pray for it. Ministers are watchmen and they should be watching and warning day and night, and they should pray constantly. And they're the ones that make mention of the Lord because they're the ones that are his messengers and they're not supposed to keep silence doing that and they're not to give God any rest in prayer. No wonder when we come to Acts chapter 6, the apostles were burdened with a church that could have been 50,000 members by Acts chapter 6. And they had a lot of widows and the Greek widows, the, the Grecian widows, and the Jewish widows 
There was unhappiness between them about who was getting the better treatment in the daily ministration of taking care of widows. And the apostles said, Church, would you please pick out seven men of good report and so forth that we can appoint over this business because we hate business. We want to do two things. Do you remember what those two things are? The ministry of the word and prayer. We will give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. You pick out seven men that can dole out money and take care of the widows. Fulfilling this. It doesn't matter what testament you're in. Oh Lord, make this church great. Open thy word to us that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Add to this church daily such as should be saved. Bless the witty inventions that we are using in thy name and for thy glory throughout the earth. Bless every contact that is out there that has heard the joyful sound or read the joyful sound from our website. Bless them, Heavenly Father, and let us bring glory to thy great name and let us glorify thy Son throughout the earth. Bless this church to be filled with peace here. And, O Lord, put a hedge about it and protect it from all evil and make us great in thy sight and for thy glory. O Lord, help us. And this is what Isaiah the prophet wanted for that church and ordered them to it. And God ordered them to it to pray for those promised blessings to be fulfilled. And then the Lord promised security with an oath. And it's in verses 8 and 9. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it, and praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Amen and amen. One of God's promised judgments upon Israel was... If you sin against me, I am going to turn the affairs of your nation upside down and occupying armies will come in to Israel. And the fields that you grew for your family to eat from, they will eat. The herds that you grew to slaughter yourself, they will slaughter and they will eat. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. This was a threat by God because it's a judgment when a people work and have that productive labor and the product of their efforts eaten by someone else. And so the Lord here is saying, I'm going to make a commitment. The church that I'm speaking of, this will never happen to. What produce do we... Listen, this isn't, this isn't God promising that every Christian is going to have it prosperous in this world from a financial standpoint but we are always going to eat the fat things he's given us and they are never going to touch them. They don't even know what we eat. They don't even know our diet. We eat the fat things of God. We have stuff they've never heard of. They're spending all their time and effort to get things that don't even matter. Isaiah 55 is what I'm referring to right now. Because because the church that Zerubbabel built and Ezra and Nehemiah visited, the Greeks came and did exactly that, this to it. Antiochus did it. The Romans did it. The Romans were occupying Judah when we run into the New Testament of Matthew chapter 1, 2, and 3. Herod the Great's over the land. Why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? To have their produce taken by the Roman government. To pay taxes. The issue here is still the spiritual church. God's going to leave us. He's never going to take it away from us again. He's taking, the current, he's taking the natural Jerusalem and describing a spiritual promise. We're, he's never going to take it away from us. World without end, amen. One God, one baptism, one faith. World without end, amen. Just, and so this is a promise of security, and it's made with an oath. And it's made with an oath of his power. Because in order to, wheel, to, to hold enemies off, you need strength. And so God swears in verse 8, the Lord hath sworn by his right hand. Your right hand for most people, and so it's a generalization, is your hand of strength and by the arm of his strength. It's by God's power. The Lord swears by various things in the Bible. He swears by his holiness. Sometimes he swears by his name. He swears by his strength. 
And in Deuteronomy 32, he raises his right hand to heaven and swears by his eternal existence. I live forever. It's one of my favorites. I thought I'd throw that out for you. Deuteronomy 32, 40. I raise my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. And therefore, he's able to do whatever he chooses to do. And he is able by his, hand, his right hand and his arm of his strength to defend his church. And he will defend them and he will protect them. And they will have plenty to eat and to praise the Lord in security and to drink in the courts of his holiness. And this refers to the feast of the first fruits of the Jews, whereby they took the first produce and they were able to securely leave their farm and go eat it in the place where God had chosen for it to be eaten. That's a lot of security. They could leave the other 90% in the field as they took a tithe. Let's come to the last lesson, verses 10 through 12. Preparation. We've had prayer in verse 1. We've had prayer in verses 6 and 7. Now we've got preparation for the coming of Messiah's kingdom. Verse 10. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up. Cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The Jewish church coming into the New Testament would be the holy people, would be sought out. The city not forsaken would be called the redeemed of the Lord. When we come to the New Testament and we read Luke 1 and 2, in Luke 1, Zacharias calls the elect remnant of Israel the redeemed. Anna calls them the redeemed because they waited in Jerusalem for redemption. They knew that it was coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is fulfilled in the New Testament church, first made up of Jews, then many, many Gentiles added to it. Verse 10 is not prayer. Verse 10 is preparation. Verse 10 is effort. Verse 10 are terms of civil engineering to make a highway. The low places, fill them up. Get the rocks out so that it's smooth. Elevate it. Make it smooth so that you can travel at the fastest pace possible to get to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you pray for it in verse 1, and you pray for it in 6 and 7, then we need to work toward it in verse 10. Cast up. Cast up. Get that dirt up there. Raise it. Elevate it so that you're not dipping into valleys all the time. Don't you get tired when you're on cruise control of dipping into valleys and having the cruise control have to jerk you around by downshifting? That should irritate you. You know, civil engineering would have done better at a cost. At a cost. Whenever your GPS, did I, no, cruise, did I call it GPS? Did I call it cruise control? <laughs> hey, okay, got another year left. Cruise control, when your cruise control has to downshift, that's because the cost to make it smooth enough that your cruise control wouldn't have to downshift was too great. It's just an issue of civil engineering. But here, cast up, cast up. Prepare ye. Go through. Go through the gates. Listen, get out there and get the highway laid out so the people can come to Zion, so the Gentiles can flock to Zion because the Lord has proclaimed unto the end of the world. Now that is an international highway. When the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world for them all to come to the Jewish church at Jerusalem, we need to get out there, and we're trying to do that. We want as many as we possibly can touch in the, in the witty, with the witty inventions God's given us to know that there is a church standing for New Testament apostolic doctrine and practice. That is what these three verses close out these three chapters with, the preparation, the effort necessary. There are things you can do 
to prepare this church, to make sure this church is at peace, to give a word of encouragement to brethren, to, uh, to adorn the less comely members in the church so that we're all together, knit and compacted together, like Psalm 122 in Ephesians 4 says, by that which every joint supplies and every part of the church that God's given us. It takes effort. And even though we haven't been able to assemble as a full church during this pandemic time, I hope that you have, and I know that there have been many efforts made of hospitality without being in another house. It's called driveway hospitality. And it's called doorstep hospitality of gift baskets being put at doors to keep the church united and in brotherly love like we should be. And that we should do everything that we can when a visitor comes into this church, they should see the love that we have toward each other and know that we are the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all men shall know that ye are my disciples by the love ye have one to another. And so let's prepare. Let's cast up the dirt. Let's raise the fallen places. Let's get stones of stumbling out of the way. Anything that would discourage a church member, anything that would discourage a visitor, let's get those things out of the way that we might prepare an international highway for the people of God to find the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's declared it to the end of the world that in Zion was salvation and Jesus Christ was coming with his reward and his work before him and they would be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And they were as soon as you reach Luke 1 and 2, you find this being fulfilled. Do you pray for this church? Do you prepare to make this church everything that you can? That means, are you fulfilling verse 1, verses 6 and 7? And verse 10, 1 and 6 and 7 is pray. 10 is prepare to promote our church. To promote our church, not for our name, not for the pastor's name, nothing like that whatsoever. It's all about him. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, let's prepare to promote the church of Jesus Christ in the earth. God's given us a tool that we can reach the whole earth. Let's be everything that we can be. And let's ask God by his spirit to bless our efforts so that there are families and homes that dial in to our website on a cell phone, on a train, in Singapore, anywhere in the world, and find us. And they glorify God because they say those are holy people. They are, redeemed, they are the redeemed of the Lord. Let's fulfill it in a Gentile way. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.